And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome back to Spin Rate, the Athletics Toronto Blue Jays podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Caitlin McGrath. I know you're used to hearing Drew Fairservice do this introduction. He is off today, I believe. I think he's enjoying some family time or holiday time. He'll be back soon with another episode with our other co-host, Ricky Romero, former Blue Jays pitcher, uh, former All-Star, and current all-around great dude. But this episode on Spin Rates, we have a very special guest here. He is uh, the host of the Designated for Assignment podcast, and he also writes for The Score, and he's a good friend. Josh Goldberg joins us. Hello, Josh. I'm surprised you didn't call me an all-around great dude. I feel, <laughs> I guess, I, I've, I've, compared to Ricky, it's impossible. I, yeah. I, I'm just not on the same level. There's there's, there's no uh, denying it. But yeah, I, I appreciate it. We've talked so many times podcast, radio, you name it. So I was obviously excited to, to get the ask to do it. And, you know, like there's always so much to talk about, but, you know, particularly at the time of the calendar that we find ourselves, this is obviously a really good time to dive into it. Yeah, of course. And everyone knows this is like my rookie voyage and steering the ship here on this podcast. I'm usually in the second chair, I think is what the pros and radio call it. Today, I'm in the first chair. It's like a promotion or something. So I will do the usual sort of rundown. If you aren't already, please remember to subscribe to SpinRate on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. And as Josh just alluded to, um, we're going to talk a lot about the trade deadline that just passed uh, on Tuesday at 6 p.m., weirdly late time, very inconvenient for us writers, and that's what it should all be about, but uh, I digress. So uh, speaking of the trade deadline, you can read all of the Athletics trade deadline coverage, and there is legitimately a ton of it um, for just $1 a month for six months by visiting the Athletic dot com slash spin rate. Um, I hope you're a subscriber. If you're not, please check it out. Um, and yeah, I mean, Josh, let's pretty much just dive in. I think that this was, I guess if I'm trying to sort of like sum up this um, trade deadline for me, I think for one, it sort of dragged on a little bit. And it partly it was because the season started later um, and so the deadline was a little bit later, I guess, to align with maybe where teams are at at a certain um, game benchmark. But I think because our like our brains and our sort of body clocks or whatever, we're just kind of used to it being more at the end of July or like almost like so it seemed to kind of drag a little bit, um, which I was like really ready for it to just happen, uh, especially on Tuesday. I'm sitting there in the morning be like, OK, things need to start happening, especially for the Blue Jays because they did all of their moves on that Tuesday. Um, so 
for one, I felt the deadline sort of dragged a little bit. And then I think that it was really highlighted from, by some real highs, some real, real exciting um, moves. Obviously, probably uh, the headliner of it was Juan Soto moving to the Padres and the Padres just completely kind of controlling and doing what they want at will um, at the deadline as they're kind of known to do at this point. Um but other some from some like real high highs, it was a bit of a weird deadline. I don't know if it was like completely underwhelming, but certainly some teams were really didn't do much. I think the market in general had uh, a handful of really enticing guys, but uh, there wasn't a huge rental market, especially with relievers. And usually you're expecting like a ton of relievers. That's just expectation every year. Like there's millions of relievers available. That really wasn't the case this year. It, it felt like there was less sellers. So it really developed into um, a favorable market for sellers. Uh, and so you saw a lot of buyers that whether they were priced out, whether they were turned off of the pricing, whether they just thought mm, our chances aren't good enough. I think we can get into maybe some specific teams, but that's kind of like my general overarching thoughts on it um what about you like what are you taking away from this deadline as a whole um anything that stands out to you any surprises any highlights for you any lowlights for you like obviously sotos it's it, wild to me that that actually did end up happening you know like especially it was a days and even a couple of weeks it seemed like where the decision to not sign that extension happened and then it was like, oh, well, is this actually going to happen? Is the team going to be able to pull this together in such a short period of time? Because you basically have to take like a whole census of your of your franchise to put your ducks in a row to actually feel like you can put forth a competitive offer. And San Diego, like AJ Preller is a wild man. So like mm-hmm. it wasn't really that surprising that that was the team was that was like, yeah, we'll basically gut our entire farm system for Juan Soto. And it probably will end up being worth it, but we'll see what happens. So that was obviously um, exciting. Yeah, outside of that, I, I was a little bit like I don't know if I w- would say underwhelmed, but it wasn't as action packed as I thought it might be. And there was so much talk about how well it was going to be a seller's market, and I think that that obviously really ended up coming to fruition. Like you look at like the Chicago White Sox made one deal for Jake Diekman. The Guardians, mm-hmm. who are not really an aggressive team by nature, they didn't do anything. And you know how much of that was. Well, the prices are exorbitant. And I think, you know, the Luis Castillo trade uh, on Friday kind of set the tone a little bit. And it was like, you know, the Jays got Jose Barrios, similar type of pitcher at a similar age with similar control left last year for two quality prospects. But, you know, Castillo, three top five prospects, a couple of other players, like a really massive return. And I imagine that that probably um, frightened some people. And like you said, rental relievers, I expected a bunch to move and not as many as I thought were going to like David Robertson goes to the Phillies for a legitimate prospect, like a a decent pitching prospect for a 37 year old rental reliever that really raised my eyebrows a little bit. Like the Tigers, I thought were going to be in a position to really maybe dictate the reliever market a little, little bit with some guys with control. They traded Michael Fulmer, who's a rental. They didn't trade Andrew Chafin, who's a rental. Like it was just kind of all over the place. And I think that, you know, certain teams were more prepared to be aggressive, like the Yankees and the Astros. And then there were other teams who, you know, maybe just weren't like, it's all subjective. Like certain teams just 
have different valuations of prospects and farm system than others. So you know, it's hard to, to know. Sometimes beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but I definitely was surprised at the lack of reliever activity because those are the types of deals you always expect to get done at the deadline. Yeah, I think that I th- I guess way before um talking like mid-July, you're kind of imagining and I remember even like putting together lists and like feeling like, oh, there's a lot of relievers available. But once it got closer and closer to the deadline, and even just talking to some of my colleagues, like the Tigers were in Toronto last weekend, um, right before and um a colleague, uh Cody, like we were just kind of like really dreaming up a scenario where you were going to have one of the Tigers relievers walk across the diamond or yeah. walk walk around the um, from the visitors clubhouse to the home clubhouse. Um, those sort of like, you know, made from movie type uh, deadline deals. And that just didn't develop. It sounds like the Blue Jays certainly probably made calls to the Tigers, but nothing happened there. They didn't do much. Um, a bit sort of uninspiring because I, I don't know. Tigers are one of those teams where I'm like, I don't know what the vision is for you. I don't know what you guys are doing. Um, you mentioned the Astros. I really liked their deadline. I thought they did some really smart moves um, addressing first base. And it, it it sounded like, to your point, like maybe they were a little bit um, like turned off by some pricing, but they were able to pivot and still uh, accomplish a lot. Like pivoting from maybe a Josh Bell to – a Trey Mancini, I thought was really smart. And I actually yeah. really like Trey Mancini in that ballpark. I believe he hit a home run today already in yeah. his Houston debut. So like, I really liked their moves. They got better. The Yankees were a bit curious because they obviously like filled one rotation spot with Frankie Montas. And yeah, he's got, you know, good stuff. There's probably a question mark there with the shoulder, which you and I had talked about a little bit, like, you know, how much do you want to give up for him? Um, there's also some sort of questions about his home road splits. Yeah. Um, maybe was uh, sort of got used to pitching in a very friendly foul territory stadium in Oakland. How will he fare in um, the Yankees? Um, and then they kind of made that curious move at the end to trade uh, Montgomery to the Cardinals, um, which was a bit like, you know, I, I think the Yankees obviously have a, had a really good rotation. They've been struggling a little bit lately, um, but they they traded away a, a, a ton of their pitching prospects and then <laughs> traded their best major league pitching depth away. So that move is curious um, to me. But uh, yeah, I think that I would sort of agree with you. The White Sox and the Guardians feels like a real missed opportunity. The The interesting thing too was reading um, James, James's piece um, from uh, the White Sox point of view and you know, he talked about a, cl- a source or something, someone close to the team telling him the players were disappointed and then the GM coming out and saying, we're disappointed too. Like, we failed. We didn't get anything done. And, it, the, you know, it, read into it how you want. Obviously, the GM doesn't get anything done and he's going to come with some excuses or say why we didn't get anything done. Yeah. Um, prices were high. They weren't able to make deals happen. I get it. But also in those situations, and maybe this is a little bit what the Blue Jays were doing is you have to get creative. I think that's what maybe some teams, Cleveland and the White Sox lacked a little bit is like, yeah, they didn't maybe pivot with the market or what was working for them in previous years wasn't working this year. um, And they weren't able to get anything done. Um, Whereas the Blue Jays, I think that it's looking at what they were able to do, probably safe to assume that, yeah, like, and I wouldn't have to assume it. I remember days before the deadline, Ross Atkins, uh, the GM coming out and saying like, 
if you're going to trade for someone now, it's you're paying a premium. And only a few days later, we saw Castillo go to the uh, Mariners, and they certainly paid a premium for him. And it didn't it didn't seem like the prices came down much, honestly. Maybe at the last last minute, like the Phillies getting Syndergaard for you know, kind of an okay modest price maybe, but Syndergaard's a rental. He's going to pitch there for two months and he's not really the lights out guy that he used to be. So um, yeah, I guess like we're kind of in agreement that uh, there was some high points to this deadline, but overall sort of a lot of teams didn't do that much or you're sort of like left like shrugging. The Mets didn't do a ton. I know I don't pay as close attention to the NL uh, in season, but I mean, the Mets are like a first place team. They're having one of the best seasons ever for their franchise and they, they really didn't, address very much I, I wonder how much the Cubs kind of balking yeah. on on not trading Contreras and not trading Ian Happ affected other teams certainly seems like it affected other teams but also again you circle back to that point it's like you try to ha- have to make something happen you have to get creative somehow well like yeah the, the Mets not addressing their catching situation to me feels like a real misfire and I, Contreras made a lot of sense and like I think it was Jed Hoyer of the Cubs basically said that teams weren't as aggressive this year, like with the Cubs players, they traded everyone last year. They traded mm-hmm. Bryant, they traded Rizzo, they traded Baez. And he said teams weren't as aggressive. And maybe that is, we can read between the lines and we had a really high price for these guys and teams just weren't prepared to reach that price. And that can kind of tie in to what we're talking about here is maybe why um, things didn't go according to the script that a lot of us expected. And I'm more surprised because like, I thought if the Soto trade happened that the floodgates would mm-hmm. open a little bit. And that was kind of like the, the, the thing that was blocking the dam. And then the, the floodgates would open and everything would start flowing. And that, you know, really didn't uh, happen in the end. Like there really weren't, there were uh, impact players traded, but there weren't that many like seismic trades outside of Soto. Like Castillo could be absolutely Montas could be, but there aren't that many teams that I'm looking at after yesterday and saying, Oh yeah. Like this team that was a fringy type of team or playoff team firmly now is entrenched as a you know legit contender. To me, it was the teams that were already really good. Mm-hmm. did a nice job in fortifying themselves and separating themselves from the rest of the pack. Like the NLs were super competitive and, and still will be, but like you look at the AL, it's basically been the Yankees and Astros all year. And they were the only two teams in the American league who really put their foot down or like, okay, we want to go for this. And the fringy type of teams in the rest of, uh, I guess the twins did a nice job, but yeah. outside of that, Nobody was really aggressive in trying to make a push to put pressure on Houston and New York. Yeah, I was I was going to say, like, the Twins, to me, um, I really like their deadline as well. They just really honed in, focused on their need pitching, which was clear. Um, and not that they sort of, like, knew that this was going to happen, but they were the only sort of active team also in the central. So their deadline looks good for what they did, but it also looks even better based on what the White Sox and the Guardians didn't do. It's interesting. Like I looked up uh, this story today. I just, well, I just stumbled upon it on fan graphs and they did like, who are the winners and losers based on how much they improve their playoff odds. Um, The Blue Jays are not, a winner or a loser. They are just in some middle zone um, because they 
improved at the margins, I would say, yeah. is the best way to characterize their moves. Um, they, if I look at the number, they had really good playoff odds um, before the deadline. Yeah. Before the deadline, they had, uh, according to this um, article at Fangraphs, uh, 94.9% odds to make the playoffs post-deadline. So after they made their moves, they have a 95.9% chance to make the playoffs. So they improved by 1%. Um, other teams, like by comparison, like the Padres, improved their playoff odds um, by 6.8%. Uh, the Twins, 7.4%. That's probably a reflection both of them and then also Guardians not doing much. Um, interestingly, the... Phillies decrease their odds, which is weird, but I guess that's probably more a reflection of what the Cardinals did and other teams yeah. did around them as opposed to like them probably just like not doing enough. We'll be right back with more spin rate, but first, check this out. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Back to the Blue Jays, obviously, that's what we're going to focus on now. I would say just kind of reading um, Twitter. Uh, I don't go too much into my comments today. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah I always caution against that. You never know yeah, what you're going to find. It was piling up there in the comments. Um, but I would say the reaction has been mixed. I think some people are disappointed, which I can understand. I think the Blue Jays honestly set a pretty high bar for themselves the last couple of junctures where teams can improve. So I'm talking about the offseason and free agency and uh, trades also in the offseason as well as the trade deadline. So the Blue Jays have had for the last, I guess, three sort of junctures, they've had significant uh, moves to their team. Last year's trade deadline, it was obviously Jose Barrios, uh, which was a great trade for them and still looks like a great trade for them despite some of his wobbles this year. Uh, preseason this season, they traded for Matt Chapman, who was really a perfect fit for them other than the fact that he doesn't hit left-handed, but he's been great. Obviously, he's been on a tear this month for them and has been um, excellent in the field. Last offseason, uh, two offseasons ago, gosh, when did George Springer? But anyway, George Springer joined the team at some point. Um, that was a big ad. Kevin Gosman in the offseason as well. So they've had uh, a lot of um, sort of headline-grabbing moves. I think the, the fan base has honestly quite s sort of gotten used to them being yeah. in the thick of things. And this year, they made some sort of sensible, pragmatic, practical deadline moves. And that is honestly very, like, Blue Jays, very Ross Atkins. Like, these moves kind of are very characteristic of how yeah. he does things. But it also went off script a little bit in the sense that the Blue Jays lately have been more of an aggressive team and more of a team. So I think a lot of people were kind of waiting for them. Like, oh, the Blue Jays are going to do something big. And they didn't do nothing. They 
added four players, obviously, um, which we'll uh, get into specifics later. But they added uh, Mitch White from the Dodgers. He's kind of a swingman, probably Ross Rippling 2.0. Anthony Bass and Zach Pop from the Marlins. uh, They're both relievers. And then Whit Merrifield, which was a kind of a curious move that came in right at at the wire. Um, And he's... I think, you know, he's a second baseman, but I think he's more so a utility guy or that's how they'll use him in Toronto. So those are the moves. They're all, again, like these floor raising type of moves. Um, what what was your read on how the Blue Jays did at the deadline? Disappointing? Um, are you fine with it? Like what what is your general thoughts on what the Blue Jays did? So like I think, you know, in these situations, you kind of have an immediate reaction and then you decompress from that a little bit. And then maybe your thoughts change or progress, um, a little bit like in the moment, like six 30 last night, I was, I would say somewhat underwhelmed because, you know, I, I think it wasn't so much that I thought that the moves were bad by any means. Like they're certainly better than they were. You're right. They're pragmatic moves, practical moves. They they're floor raising moves. But I just went into the deadline thinking that they had to find a way to really infuse that bullpen with just more juice. And they they did. I like I'm not saying that they didn't. Anthony Bass has been incredible. Like slider, 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 tons of strikeouts, not the same pitcher he was two years ago. Do I really believe that Anthony Bass is going to pitch to a sub two ERA the rest of the season? Like, no, in all honesty, I think he's given up one home run this year. Coming back to the AL East. I just don't know if I can really buy in on that. The Zach Pop thing is interesting, but the same thing. He doesn't, you have a lot of guys who already put the ball in play and he's a big sinker ground ball guy. That's fine. You have good defense, but in the playoffs, weird things happen. When the ball is in play, you're bringing all sorts of outcomes into the equation. And that's just not what I want. I want easy, as many easy outs as possible in competitive baseball down the stretch and in the postseason. And I still think that there are real question marks. If there's enough electricity in that bullpen to get those kinds of easy outs, the Mitch white deal. I think that one's uh, that one's pretty, pretty heady. Like we'll see what Nick Frasso does or doesn't turn out to be like, I'm not really going to, you know, be that upset when he traded a prospect. Mitch White's, I think, a free agent in 2027 or 2028. So they have a ton of control over him. And maybe you can wring something out of him more than he's shown. I think he does have some some decent stuff. So we'll see what happens there. The Maryfield thing blew my mind. Like it was <laughs> the last thing I would have ever expected is that like if they were looking for a position player, I would have expected it to be a left-handed bat, but you know, like Ian Happ was the guy. And somebody asked me, like, why would you want Ian Happ over Whit Merrifield? Like the track record of Whit Merrifield is longer and better. And that's actually a fair point. Ian Happ's been a better player this year. Like the Merrifield, the vaccination stuff is whatever. Like, we'll see what happens there. I, I can't imagine that the Jays made a deal without some assurance or some feeling that he was going to be available for a hundred percent of the games if he was healthy, because it would just be bad business if they were like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll hopefully we'll convince you if once we get you in the door, like maybe we'll be able to get it done. But like, I, I think that they're, they're better than they were, like I said, but I think, you know, where I'm at is that they didn't do enough, especially in comparison to the Yankees and Astros, like we were talking about, like those teams, made impactful moves and the Jays moves could end up being impactful, but it seems like a little light 
you know, considering you, I think already had a, a gap to close to those teams. I feel like those teams even more so took a step away from you as opposed to your moves kind of inching closer to them. So like in that sense, I would say it's underwhelming, but like my initial reaction was very disappointed, but now I'm like, they're decent moves, but I I'm was left wanting more, I would say in the end. Yeah, I think that's a good assessment. I, I think in a vacuum, you look at it and they're all like, these are good practical moves. Really interesting that I think all of the moves, yeah, I know, I shouldn't say, I think I know, all the moves come with control. Uh, yeah. Anthony Bass is a, you don't have to extend that control. It's an option year for 3 million and I think a buyout for 1 million. So the Blue Jays can let him be a free agent at the end of the year, but they have the option to bring him back. Um, and the Whit Merrifield has, um, is signed through next year and then has an, a like crazy high 18 million option, <laughs> usual option that won't be picked up, but that's the year after. Uh, and then the two other pitchers have a ton of control left. They're both young, um, sort of beginnings of their career. So in a vacuum, the moves all satisfy some needs this year. They look good that you didn't spend a ton and you get control next year. The biggest name prospect going out was Jordan Groshans, who went to the Marlins for the pair of relievers. He, ahead of the season, was in their top five prospects, but he has had um, a bit of a underwhelming season in AAA. He's still quite young for AAA, so you have to keep that in mind. But the questions of his power have been sort of lingering for a couple years now. Um, there was questions about it last year. Uh, I think he only has one home run this year. Um, so... Uh, it, it it's a decent pickup for the Marlins if he turns into something. Um, they need offense, so I yes, you understand why that goes that way. But I think that was a good you know all all fine moves by the Blue Jays. But I would agree in comparison to what the other teams did, I, I sort of understand why fans would feel a bit disappointed. I, I understand also given the context of what the Jays have done in the past, why they would feel disappointed. Um, but to me, this felt like a very like Ross Atkinsy deadline where. Maybe in a few years, we're looking at Mitch White yeah. just in the same way they were kind of looking at Ross Ripley now, like two years ago when they traded for him 2020. A, that trade similarly kind of came out of nowhere where the Dodgers just like have all these extra starters and they just can move them because they just don't have enough room for like their 10 starters that they have. Yeah. Um, and so the Blue Jays kind of like went to that well again. And you know, I was saying this all along. The Blue Jays love like <laughs> repeat moves or going to the same well. It's why I predicted um that they would get Anthony Bass. I just had this feeling. Like, A, he's he satisfies some of their Boltman needs. He's not like a huge freak, like throws a hundred with a nasty slider necessarily. I mean his slider is very good pitch, but he doesn't throw a hundred. He throws like mid-90s. Um but he was he was good for them in 2020. He yeah. walked too many guys, but he was serviceable for them. Um, and he's only gotten better since, obviously making adjustments. But yeah, would it? I think like and it's the difference between it being a really impactful deadline and what they did, which is sort of just like fine. I think honestly would have just been one extra move, and that's probably a sort of lights out reliever. So if they were able to pry like a Jimenez or a Gregory Soto from the Tigers, yeah. that we're it's a completely different conversation. Then we're saying, you know what? The Blue Jays raised their floor and they raised their ceiling of the bullpen. So they were, and you can say this about any team, right? We could be also be insane. Like, well, the, the guardians were one move away from having a great deadline. So the fact is they didn't do it. They didn't get it done. So as much as the Blue Jays did some things, they did some things to help. Um, it wasn't an A plus deadline. I think 
I think Joe Bowden did some grades. I think he gave the Blue Jays like a B-ish or something, somewhere in the B range. I think I'd agree with that probably because given how many teams didn't do anything, I think you have to give the Blue Jays credit for doing some things and getting creative a little bit um, and looking like the team that at least didn't really rely on rentals, which can sometimes bite you a little bit. Sure. That's honestly like look at the Blue Jays last year. The two rental relievers they got, Soria and Han, did absolutely nothing for them. Um, and it was the controllable guys, Adam Simber and Trevor Richards, that were good for them and have been more so Simber this year, but have been helpful this year. So um, I think that's also to keep in mind. Sometimes we look at these rentals and say, you know, David Robertson would have really helped. But yeah, sometimes it doesn't. And I'm sort of not, I'm of the mind of like, David Robertson was also pitching in the NL Central, which is a weaker division than the AL East, to say the least. And um, I'm not sure his his stuff looks completely the same if he's going back to the AL East. So that's yeah. kind of where I'm falling. It's like, I understand where the disappointment is, but I also think, well, like, it's not like, it's not like anyone else got Gregory Soto. The Tigers really didn't seem that open to moving guys or whatever, for whatever reason. Like, not, like, no one other than the Yankees and, and the Astros, like, they did – a lot, but you know, I, I don't know. I'm sort of like, I'm fine with the Jays moves. I sort of settle on, they're fine. Yeah. Like I, I think that I, it's right. that They're fine. Like I, it's hard to know what the price tag was for like a Jimenez or a Soto. I assume really high that they didn't move and like, you know, trading legitimate top end prospects for relievers, even ones with control, that is a, that's a, you know, treacherous path to take. Like, I, I don't think that even though on some list, Jordan Groshans is still re- relatively highly touted and highly ranked. Like, I think that the bloom has fallen off the rose a little bit there, especially within the Blue Jays organization. Like, it's certainly possible. Like you said, he's young enough still that there's, he's not ne- necessarily nearing the end of his developmental clock. Like he could find another level, but you just look organizationally, where was Jordan Groshans going to play? for this club. Like, you know, whether match happens here in the long run or not, like a Relvis Martinez is probably going to be playing third base before too long for the Blue Jays. He's definitely ahead of, uh, or was ahead of Groshans. You know, Bo Bichette has, I think another three seasons before free agency at shortstop. So like, I know Groshans has played some, some first base, some DH while he's Vlad, he's at first base. Like there's just wasn't a pathway. So you could say, well, and this was my initial reaction was, Hey, he's a top five prospect. You're just getting two relievers for him. And then afterwards it was just like, well, yeah, he has one home run at AAA this year. You know, there's concerns about his power production at a, a, a corner infield or shortstop spot. Is that really, can he really be a, a quality major leaguer without that power? So then you think about it. And it's like, you know what? They probably did pretty well. And it seems like a lot of you know, people within the game were pretty glowing on the return that the Jays got in, in that deal. So like, as far as that trade goes and the white deal, like I, like the return, the Jays really didn't give up that much. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think any of the the assets like Samad Taylor, Max Castillo, Max Castillo had some moments, no question. We'll see what happens, you know, day on the road. If, if he can turn into something, you know, Samad Taylor also has shown some, some promise in the, in the minors, but like you're not really lamenting the loss there of any of those guys. Like, I don't think your, your system is super depleted. And like you said, you added control. You know, I think like some people have some questions about the depth starting pitching wise. 
I, I don't really think you're in that much of a worse position than you were. Like Mitch White, when all is going to, according to plan, just takes the Max Castillo role and he's more proven than Max Castillo. And I think better than Max Castillo. So, you know, you're coming out sort of ahead in that swap. The stripling injury sort of throws a fly in the ointment now because now Mitch White, I think, is basically going to be pressed into duty as soon as possible. You know, like, I just don't know what necessarily people expected. Like, were you expecting them to get two new pieces of the rotation that were going to push Kikuchi and Stripling out? Like, that's a hard thing to to get done and, and realistically accomplish. Like, the Jays invested in Kikuchi. They were going to do everything that they possibly could to get him right. And Stripling's been really good. So they weren't going to look to shove him out of the rotation unless something really great materialized. And it sounds like they tried on Montas, like they were in on him. It didn't work out. Like, you know, you can, you can definitely lament that if you want, but like, I thought as far as, you know, the starting pitching situation, like I, I'm not really beating up on them the same way uh, that a lot of, uh, of people were like, I, I thought that I'd much rather Mitch white than Noah Syndergaard. Like to me, it's not even close. Noah Syndergaard's just a, a name brand at this point. <laughs> you look at those two, you put them side by side in 2022, Mitch White, I think is a more valuable asset. And, you know, maybe you paid a little bit more for the control of White as opposed to rental in Syndergaard, but like, I'd still rather him probably the rest of the season. And I like, sometimes people just like the sticker shock of, well, you didn't get Noah Syndergaard. You got this guy I've never heard of. You failed. I wanted the guy I actually know as opposed to the guy I don't know. So I think Mitch White is actually somebody who could end up really, paying some dividends, you know, maybe more so down, down the line than this year, but I wouldn't be surprised if he has impactful moments here down the stretch. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw someone tweeting at you, but at me, cause it somehow, I don't know. I think you had replied yeah. to me and it was Sorry. like, and it was like, <laughs> and it was like the, now that the Jays had done something or whatever. And then the person was like, now they have to trade for someone where you would buy the Jersey of. And it's like, yes. yeah, that's not, not really how it works, honestly. And if you're talking about the Jay's jersey sales, it's like 95% Vlad and then yes. the rest. <laughs> Most people are just buying a Vlad jersey. That's the smart investment um, because he'll be around a long time probably. Um, but so, yeah, I, I would agree with – yeah, the starting pitching thing is interesting because I honestly was earlier – in the season uh, or even last month, I was more on the sort of getting concerned about the starting pitching depth especially mm-hmm. and – at the same time, I sort of understand how you view the trade deadline and their need for starting pitching as more of a luxury as opposed to a serious need. And I think Mitch White is kind of that like luxury get where it's like, now you've got a guy that you is controllable. He obviously has good staff. He comes from the Dodgers organization. And they certainly know how to develop pitchers. Um, you have an, a guy that can swoop in and just take that Ross Stripling role this year, but also next year when Ross Stripling is going to be a free agent and might not be back with you guys. So you've already, you've just acquired who's going to be your next Ross Stripling. Um, and potentially he can be Ross Stripling with also Ross Stripling if he comes back, but um, you just kind of cover your bases there a little bit. So he will be pressed into duty probably very soon. So I, I actually wrote this today. It's up right now. Um, and when you're listening to this, it'll be up and probably filled with comments. Um, but I wrote basically that the, the Blue Jays, um, additions are essentially going to be pressed into duty right away. The yeah. relievers certainly, Anthony Bass, take the eighth inning for us. We need you. Um, and Zach Pop as well, not the eighth inning, but they're going to be pressed into duty. Relievers, that's just how it works. More spin rate coming up right after these words from our sponsors. 
If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. DirecTV gives you access to apps like Netflix and live sports right next to each other. I don't get it. Let me put it in pigeon terms. It's like that one amazing dumpster with the old fruit and cardboard all in one place. How am I supposed to keep up with illustrative metaphors when you are making me so hungry? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com. Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on DirecTV. Terms and restrictions apply. Whit Merrifield's uh, interesting acquisition because the Blue Jays, I think, like him for his versatility. And the Blue Jays, over the last couple of years, um, they're one of their MOs is collecting guys with versatility um, and having as many of those guys on their roster, athletic guys, um, guys that can play different positions, guys yeah. that can have different skills at the plate. So other than being left-handed, which would have been ideal, and they did not get that. It's it's not it's not a deal breaker for me that they didn't get a left-handed bat. I certainly would have put that below starting pitching in terms of a need um because as much as they would like the lineup balance, it's weird because this team hits right-handed hitter yeah. hit, hits right-handed um pitchers really well. They don't hit left-handed, so it's like and, and but they're all like a right-handed lineup. So it, it's kind of a weird situation where it's like it would look nice. Their lineup would look nicer with more balance, but they're getting the results they need against right-handed pitching. They're probably one of the best hitting teams against right-handers right now. Uh, they're best, one of the best hitting teams in general. Um, so Whit Merrifield is interesting to add because he does things a little differently. More of a contact hitter, yeah. um, more of a speedy guy. Um, even though he's in his getting, I think thirty three now, but he's still got the speed. He plays a lot of different positions in the infield. Uh, second base, I think, has been one of his primary positions, but he can play all over the infield and the outfield. He's played center field not a ton, a ton, but I looked it up today. Seventy six games over his career, he's played center field. Um, I, ta- I asked our Royals reliever, our reliever, uh, Royals writer, um, Alec Lewis, just like can he play center field? And he said, yeah, like he can play center field. He's not, he's not going to be a gold glove center fielder, obviously, but he can do it. So I think look, looking at what's happening with the Blue Jays, obviously Ross Stripling going on the IL. So you, as, as you said, Mitch White going to be pressed into duty right away. Whit Merrifield might also similarly be pressed into duty right away, maybe covering some center field for George Springer, who's battling that um, right elbow soreness, injury, inflammation, whatever you want to call it. But here's the rub with Whit Merrifield. When can he play in Toronto? Can he play in Toronto? That's the big question. We obviously don't know. Kind of understand why Ross is not saying too much because privacy, you want 
Whit Merrifield be able to talk about it himself, but obviously the Blue Jays have sort of almost essentially no commented on the vaccination status. So just to recap people, that we know that Whit Merrifield is not vaccinated because when the Royals came to Toronto last month, he was one of the many players, 10 of them, who didn't come to Toronto. So, and then he kind of got a lot of attention for some comments that he made. I'm paraphrasing here, but as it, it was essentially like, He's not, he didn't get vaccinated. And if it was between him and, and the chance at the postseason, or if, you know, he was traded to a team and they needed to play in Canada in the postseason, he'd consider getting the vaccine. Yeah. But so essentially, like, the Royals aren't competing right now. I don't need it. But if I have to get it, I'll be willing to get it. He took a lot of heat for that. He came out the next day and clarified it, kind of apologized for it. So, Obviously, it's still a question, will he get vaccinated? I mean, you kind of alluded to it earlier. We have to – and the the Blue Jays are a pretty savvy front office. I think they would have done their due diligence. I think they would have asked around. They would have found out whether he's willing to get it. I don't think they traded for someone who's not going to be able to play half the games. I also think that looking at Whit Merrifield's situation, there's incentive for him to do it beyond just being a player. He would sa- uh, he would sacrifice like half of his salary yeah. if he wasn't playing half the games. So um, there is incentive for him to do it. Um, based on his comments, it sounds like he'll he he would be willing to do it if he, if he had to if there, it was a if it was between him and playing the playoffs. So we're going to hear from him or the media are going to, I'm going to be in Minneapolis tomorrow um, with the team. Presumably all the players are going to be there. We're going to hear from him. So we'll probably get an answer. We don't have to speculate about this um, for that much longer. Honestly, when some of you guys are listening to this podcast, whenever you listen to it, we'll probably know. Um, it's safe to assume. I think the answer is he'll get it, but there's still a waiting period. The He would have to be like 14 days, I think post yeah. like a first shot or a second shot, um, like just to be fully vaccinated. So we'll kind of find out the timeline. He's going to miss some home games, uh, uh, assuming that he hasn't got the vaccine already, which I don't know, maybe he has, but we'll see. But how, how does that, like, I mean, I, I don't know that we have to talk about that very much other than it kind of surprised people. Cause we went into the deadline, assuming like the Jays aren't going to trade for any unvaccinated players. And then at the yeah. last minute, they traded for one very well-known unvaccinated player. Yeah, like that was why I was blown away as much as the lack of a seamless on-field fit, I think is also a factor. Like he's not somebody that you looked at and was like, oh yeah, this, this, even if he's, he's been bad this year. Like he's had a good month of July and has been better and has been an above average offensive player has been making more contact, but like through the end of May, he was hitting like. I think his all of his average on base and slugging were under 200. It was a disaster (laughs) for a while, but yeah, like I, it's very interesting that they went that route with an unvaccinated player, and and like I be we will be very very curious to hear what he has to say, like what sort of comments there are. Like I wouldn't be surprised if anything was said. Like he's already gotten it, he's going to get it, he's still thinking about it. Like to me, it's all on the table. After he made the comments, I think the Royals GM Dayton Moore said he was disgusted by the comments, and rightfully so. Like that's a pretty rough look to your teammates and to your fan base that you, you basically don't care about the actual team because they're bad and you're not going to, you know, do something that you're not comfortable with because the team's not good enough. I can understand taking a beating uh, for that, but if he starts playing better, there's a lot to like, like you guys made two all-stars. It's been an above average defensive player, essentially every year of his career, but one, 
like, you know, I was looking at his baseball savant page, like in terms of outs above average, he's been in the 80th percentile or above, like I said, basically every year, it's hard to parse through, like, is it mostly second base? How much of that is outfield? I think he can be a decent outfielder. Honestly, like the Springer's thing is such a wild card because like if Springer's healthy, I kind of, you know, I might get, take a beating for this. I would prefer to play Whit Merrifield, especially against right-hand pitching over Santiago Espinal. Like Espinal has been bad against righties and has basically been bad period since like June. He's really struggling and he was a great story, but I'd probably take Whit, I'd bet on Whit, Whit Merrifield producing more than Santiago Espinal. And I think, you know, defensively, it's a toss up. Like I, you could maybe even argue that Merrifield might be a notch above Espinal, even though he's great at, at second base. So if Springer's healthy, that's an interesting conversation um, at second base. But if Springer's missing time, I'd rather have Whit Merrifield patrolling center field than, than Tapia. Like I, I know Tapia has become the, the roller coaster of DFA, <laughs> this guy on May 1st to now he's like, Oh, he's a perfect fourth outfielder. I love this guy. He hustles, you know, he's, he makes contact. He's perfect. You know, Randall who, but now like I, he, I, to me, he's still, he's, he's ex- overexposed as a center mm-hmm. fielder. Like he's just, that's just not his, his sweet spot. Like he's fine in a corner. I can live with it, especially left, right. Even I'm okay. I'm it's more palatable. I just don't want him as my primary center fielder. Um, if Springer's not playing. And I think, you know, Merrifield will be the guy if Springer has to miss some time. But the vaccination status, like you said, like if Springer gets put on the IL and misses the next two weeks or whatever it is, like Merrifield's going to, I know you've got a nine game road trip. You've got seven more games, like whatever his dosage or series of vaccines <laughs> he gets, he's either missing two weeks or three. Yeah. So he's like, I think, you know, he could debut at home at the end of August type thing, but he's missing the next homestand. I think it's the angels and the guardians or something like that. Uh, he's missing, he's missing those series. So like, it's not a seamless fit really in any respect, but if all goes according to script in terms of vaccination and performance, he could actually end up being a very valuable tool because he makes contact and, you know, the Jays, they're not a super high strikeout team, but some guys, you know, are, are prone to it. And especially if you fancy yourself a playoff team, like Whit Merrifield, if he's firing on all cylinders, is the type of player who can make a difference in, in the postseason, I think. Yeah. And I think there's probably um, an impact just adding a different like look to your lineup, a different type of bat, like that pitchers have to think about a little more how to pitch to him. Uh, even thinking about their game today where they only mustered four hits against Yarbrough, who is yeah. their, their their kryptonite, and the Rays' best relievers. The Rays aren't – the bullpen isn't as lethal as it has been in years past, but they do have a handful that are good. So if, if they have a lead or it's a close game, they can keep it close. It's mm-hmm. – you know, so they can still do that. And just watching the Blue Jays today, you sort of wonder – what would a Maryfield do in this lineup on a game like today? Could he kind of get things going with a couple like hits here and there and making some noise on the bases? I also think it's really interesting that we all know that John Schneider has come along and been a lot more aggressive on the base pass and yeah. been more willing to steal bases and take the extra base and hit and runs. And then the Blue Jays go out and get a guy that's kind of known for to be speedy on the base pass. I think that I wonder if there's some influence there. John Schneider was like, Hey, have you guys uh, wondered about uh, Merrifield? Obviously, I don't, I don't know, but the Blue, Jays, right. the Blue Jays are a very collaborative bunch. 
Um, they the front office talks to the coaching staff and vice versa. So I, I would I would bet that the Blue Jays front office asked John Schneider's input or or sort of thought maybe this type of move will will mesh with the sort of team that we're aiming for. And it's it, I think it's good because the Blue Jays they are embracing the John Schneider style, but they don't have enough fast runners. Um, and so sometimes they just you know don't don't get the job done on the bases, but. It's fun to watch, and Merrifield will give them that type of guy that I think will cause the kind of chaos on the base pass that they are looking to do, which gives their team another – the Blue Jays are always a good team, and I think they play better when there is a bit of chaos amongst yeah. them. And, and like, the, some of the most inter- entertaining games are when they're a bit, you know, doing things out of the ordinary or, or driving the other team a little mad – um, so to speak. And so I think he's a nice ad in that way. And he, he does things a little differently. Like you said, the Blue Jays don't strike out a ton, but they do lean more power hitters a little bit. Um, so he adds a different look um, and a different look that you can slot in in that utility role because you have Cavan, but he's a completely different hitter as well. Obviously more of a walk guy, on-base guy, but on-base guy differently than Whit Merrifield. So the more I've like sat with it, the more I've kind of understood the yeah. deal a little bit. Um, and I think that once we clear up the the vaccination status, whenever that is, it'll become even more clear. And I do think he has a chance to be like sneaky good for them. And and I wonder, I wonder just sort of like reading reading in between the lines, maybe and maybe inferring too much in this. But the Royals have been bad for a long time, and I wonder. If a change of scenery will spark him a little bit coming to a team that is competitive and is in the wild card race and is looking to make the postseason. It's obviously been a while since Whit Merrifield has played on a competitive team. So that could also be a spark. You just kind of wonder, like, did he come into the season sort of like, I don't want to say unmotivated because I don't know him at all. And I wouldn't say that about an athlete, but you just sort of have to wonder year after year after year playing for the Royals that just aren't being a competitive team and you're a guy that has been rumored to be traded year after year and you never do get traded at the deadline. Like you just kind of wonder, was that weighing on him this year? Um, so maybe like a cha- he is a change of scenery, like candidate type where he comes to Toronto. He kind of is surrounded in a lineup that's a lot different than when he was surrounded with in, in, in the Royals lineup, obviously a lot more powerful hitters. And maybe he doesn't feel any kind of like pressure to be the guy in Toronto. He's just another guy in their lineup. And maybe that sparks him a little bit too. Yeah, I think so. And, and um, there's a possibility like probability, I would say he's going to be batting. I would think in the bottom portion of the lineup, like somewhere between seven and nine, like uh, the, the meat of the Blue Jays lineup is pretty entrenched. Like, you know, Espinal, Jansen, if they're in, are usually eight, nine. And I imagine, you know, Maryfield will probably bat there. And that's the type of guy who, you know, can get on base and wreak havoc and turn the lineup over. Mm-hmm. And then you're in a position where, you know, knock on wood, George Springer's up with potentially a man in scoring position if all goes according to plan. And then you can have these kinds of innings where the bottom of the order really sets the table in some ways for the top of the order. Like you think back to, I, I, I normally don't like to do this, but you think back to 2015, that happened a lot down the stretch. Like, you know, certain guys, Ryan Goins was having an, like a, just an out of body experience for a couple of months, but he was turning the lineup over and then the big guys were driving them in and that's why they were scoring so many runs. And, you know, like another thing I've been thinking about, like as far as the deadline goes, 
Like if your big horses start playing that are already here, consistently start playing a little bit better, that can boost you as well. Like, you know, Vladdy has found it. I think he's on a 14 game hitting streak. He's been better. Like Bo Bichette has certainly been struggling of late. Like if he can find it and then your additions that you brought in externally also provide some impact, then I think you can, you know, maybe have a higher ceiling than perhaps we're seeing right now. Like a lot of people envision that the Blue Jays can put it all together. And when they are at their best, they're as good as any team, arguably in baseball. We've only seen that in like flashes, I would say this year, it hasn't been consistent. It's been more sporadic, but I think that that's what a lot of people are hoping is that just, you know, the guys who are already here that maybe haven't had the seasons that fans expected, or I'm sure they themselves internally have expected start to replicate that form that we saw last year. And then your deadline acquisitions come in and, you know, provide you that shot in the arm. I did not mean to say that uh, (laughs) just a coincidence. And then you can be the team that, you know, you want to be and fans, you know, want you to be uh, here over the next couple months. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was like sort of the overarching point I tried to make um, in what I wrote after the deadline was that this was also a signal from the front office that we believe in this core and this mm-hmm. core has to get it done. We've given you some complimentary pieces here, but we've already stacked this team up with a really good lineup and a really good pitching staff. This is the time to get it done. We believe in you. We've, we've given you some reinforcements, but um, the players on the roster have to get it done. And so that was kind of the sentiment I was getting from Ross a little bit is like, we're excited to add to this, to what we think is already a really exciting core. So moving off from the deadline a little bit, I think we've both kind of set our pieces on it and we're going to have another episode of spin rate this week coming out with rookie and drew Wayne in on their thoughts on the blue Jays and what other teams in and around the blue Jays did. So you'll get more of their thoughts on the deadline, but I'm here in Tampa still. I fly out to Minneapolis tomorrow. The blue Jays just wrapped up a really quick two game series in Tampa. They split it. Um, eh, you'll take that at the drop. I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was, uh, I, I, you know, you honestly, like there's days when you go to the ballpark and you're very, really in tune with what's happening in the game. Um, and there's days where you didn't realize that Kevin Gosman was throwing a no hitter (laughs) until it apparently didn't happen. Um, apologies to Kevin Gosman. He, he pitched really well, but we were a bit distracted as writers on Tuesday, but I think there's a lot of positives from that game. Again, Gosman looking great against a team that I think he kind of matches up well against because yeah. the Rays swing a lot. They, they're they prone to chasing a lot. Um, so, you know, you got enough hits in that. You got a little bit lucky there in the ninth inning. Jordan Romano, AL reliever of the month. I didn't realize how great his month was. And then I looked at them. Really good, like, yeah. Really good. Yeah. Um, and then today was a bit of a dud game. I don't know that you – it's, it's Yarbrough. I don't know what you're, I don't know what you can say. The, obviously, Teoscar gets to him, but the rest of the team, they just can't figure him out. Kikuchi, eh, you wish, you wish that he did a little more. Um, I think the, the thing with Kikuchi is just having these innings where things derail a little bit. First inning, second inning, he was kind of cruising. And then the third, it kind of goes off and takes him a while to get the control and the command back and give him credit for getting out of it. Give it, give him credit for not, um, or for limiting da- damage, I should say. And that's kind of what he said after the game, but you do hope that he can kind of build off this because you want to take those five, five inning starts and hope that he can get to six innings 
Whereas this one, he only went four, 74-ish pitches or something like that. So you're really looking for more efficiency from him and more effectiveness because he's got the stuff. He for sure has. You look what happened the first two innings. He was dominant. And it was just like, oh, what, what's going on here? He's building off of, you know, like that was why the start against the Tigers, he had to take that with a grain of salt because the Tigers are one of, if not the worst offensive teams in the league. It was encouraging that he had more command and he was throwing more first pitch strikes. But like you said, there's just no predictability with him, no consistency, sometimes batter to batter or even in the same at bat, but certainly not inning to inning. And we saw that sort of unfold a little bit in his start against the Rays. And that, like, if you want to criticize a little bit, you could say, well, you know, why is this front office still, you know, putting faith in Kikuchi with the way that he's pitched? And I I can kind of uh, understand that, but like, I I was thinking about this. Like, would you rather Jose Quintana or you say Kikuchi? And like, you know, maybe Quintana is more dependable for a five and dive. Like maybe he can give you five and a third, five and two thirds, but I'd rather, you know, see if Kikuchi can find, find it because his upside, his stuff is just will blow Quintana out of the water. And like, am I parting with legitimate assets for a rental and a not particularly exciting rental? Like the options just weren't that great. And like, it would just be sort of doing something to do something. And they clearly believe that Kikuchi can figure it out. And I've seen enough good stuff here over the last two starts that leaves me feeling at least somewhat encouraged. It's not sustainable. Like they have to find a way to get him deeper into games. Like you, you just can't have four inning starts once a week. Maybe you can, but you don't want that to be something that it's just like, well, every fifth day, our bullpen's just got to be ready to go because this guy's only going to be able to give us, you know, 12 to 15 outs Mm -hmm. because you never know what can happen. Somebody the night before can, you know, get injured or have a bad start. And then your bullpen's already taxed. And then you're relying on him to give you six innings to save the bullpen. Like he's just got to pitch better. You can't have that mindset, you know, in, in your brain. But I, I like, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't at least a little bit intrigued and encouraged by what I've seen from him um, over the last two starts. Like he's got to put it together a little bit more and, and it can't just be, you know, a fleeting inning here or two or whatever it is. It's got to be five or six. But there are definitely some building blocks uh, that I think you should feel, um, you know, cautiously optimistic about is is the best way I would put it. Yeah, I would agree with that. And maybe down the road, you do pair someone like Mitch White with a Kikuchi, right? And if you're just getting five from him, but if you can get two innings from Mitch White and then you're asking a little bit less from your main bullpen guys in those instances, obviously it's not going to happen right away because Mitch White probably is going to slot into the Stripling uh, rotation spot for the time being. Um, But it doesn't seem like Stripling's injury is like a long-term. So um, looking ahead, the Blue Jays are going to Minneapolis for four-game series. In Minneapolis, the Twins are a lot better team now than when the Blue Jays saw them earlier. And they, they were a good team when the Blue Jays saw them earlier, or at least a good hitting team. Um, that's going to be an interesting series for me. I mean, it's on the road. Four-game series are really tough. Really I tough. Think, I think, like, if you're the Blue Jays, like, you're looking to split. If you split, you're, you're feeling good. Um, I think because the twins are probably riding the high right now. They've been a little bit inconsistent lately. I think primarily because of their lack of pitching or consistent pitching. Um, like they were a couple of days ago, they were using Aaron Sanchez um, as a starter. And then they immediately DFA'd him because of the moves they were making. But um, yeah, that, that twins team 
It's a it's a sneaky good team. Oh yeah, like there there's a lot of talent there. Like I was not like a week ago, if you had asked me, I would have said, you know what, I, I don't think that there's going to be enough here for them to hang on to win the division. Like the White Sox or maybe the Guardians would overtake them because they were kind of leaking oil a little bit. But you know, credit to them, they went out and made moves where they needed to make them. Like their lineup is good when mm-hmm. everyone's healthy. They have a lot of guys in that lineup who can hit. Like if the Jays don't pitch uh, this weekend. Minnesota's capable of putting up some crooked numbers, but like the bullpen in particular was bad. And there are a lot of holes there and they get Lopez and they get Fulmer. So those are two proven options and leverage spots. Like I Lopez will probably close for them. And then they get uh, Tyler Maley from Cincinnati, who like isn't a spectacular starting pitcher, but is solid. And I imagine will line up to make a start in, in the series and, and, yeah, like he's a little homer prone, so maybe the Blue Jays, you know, will be able uh, to take advantage a little bit. Like their rotation, to me, still like you're still starting Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer. Like there's some question marks there. Like Joe Ryan, I don't know if he's like he's maybe running out of gas a little bit. He hasn't been as good as he was early in the season, but it's still you know a, a team to take seriously. Like if you're not at your best, like it could be a difficult weekend. Like, you know, you don't want to draw parallels to what happened in Seattle because it's a completely different team, but like the Jays are a completely different team than they were back then. But you just, you know, if you're lackadaisical in any way, like Minnesota is more than capable of taking advantage. So it is going to be like, this is, you know, this race series on the Jays are in a nice little test of in the 15 to 20 game range in August here where they're going to be playing a lot of tough teams. And, you know, now you can say to yourself, like, how do we stack up? We we got our season back on track against, you know, some also rans, you know, Kansas city, some teams that had some vaccination issues, the Red Sox were in a spiral, but like the Jays have some swagger and some confidence back. Now you got to have to find a way to, you know, kind of carry that forward against some stronger competition. We'll see what happens. Yeah. What I always look to for the Jays to know whether they're going good and they were like this earlier in the season when they were also on a bit of a run, I think in like June, um, is when they don't lose consecutive games. Like they, they had a period early on or earlier in the season where they went, I don't know, three weeks or so they went a significant um, amount of time without losing consecutive games. And that's always a really good sign as a good team is they don't let the losses like linger or prolong or, uh, you know, stack up on top of each other. They just kind of flip it. And so that's what I'll kind of look to. Can they get off the right foot um, with, and maybe it does have some impact having a bunch of new teammates come in um, and meeting them and, and seeing them in the lineup and have, you know, that kind of thing can can spark a team a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about Seattle like that would be an absolute disaster. Obviously, the Blue Jays don't want that to happen again, which is why I say split would be really nice. You obviously hope for maybe a series win if you're the Blue Jays. But I think if you walk away with a split, you're feeling good. Um just to sort of wrap up this episode, um, it feels like a little dated at this point because so much has happened. But last week, I guess it was last week, I have no concept of time, but the Blue Jays um, announced some pretty exciting changes to the Rogers Center. They are doing pretty significant renovations. They're not exactly blowing the building up, but they are adding a lot of cool features. They're changing basically almost all the seating sections in 
two stages. They're going to focus basically on the outfield section, um, and then they'll move to the lower bowl, I think, in the following phase, which will be the following season. So adding um, raised bullpens, bringing the seats closer to the field, so there's not going to be that gap that exists right now where, uh, I guess, above uh, the outfield wall, but between the seating, um, you're going to have porches or whatever you want to call them, patios in the 500 section that look really cool. Just kind of briefly, what was your take on those changes? You're a Toronto-born guy. You've probably been to the Rogers Center a million times like me. You probably have fond memories of being there. <laughs> what What is your take on the new changes? I, I like them, honestly. Like, uh, you know, people are so jaded about stuff like this that you know, just like you can get swept up in negativity where it's like, oh, well, you know, it's still a concrete slab and it's still a dump and, and all this. And like, you know, a, short of building a new ballpark, the issues are going to be the issues, but like, it's going to be real difficult to get that accomplished in downtown Toronto. Like how many people are just be like, here's a plot of land for you to build a monstrosity <laughs> in downtown Toronto. Like it's going to be tough. So if they can get that accomplished, that will be one of the crown jewels. Uh, of Mark Shapiro's career. Like if he can get a stadium, new stadium built in downtown Toronto, I'll tip my cap. But in the interim, like if it's 10 to 15 years before that happens, they had to find a way to just improve the experience because like, I'll say I am like, when I go to a game, I'm excited to sit in my seat on my butt and watch the game. And like, yeah, you have a beer or two, like you go up a couple times at most, but I'm basically there to enjoy the experience. Like I'm, I think more in the minority in that sense. Like a lot of people are going to maybe one or two games a year and it's like, yeah, okay, I'll watch a bit, but I want to schmooze it up. I want to walk around. I want to check some stuff out. I want to have, you know, like an atmosphere and experience. And there's just, that's non-existent right now. Like outside of the flight deck, there's not really much going on. Like there's just not any congregation spots where you can be like, Oh, I'm sitting in this section. Some buddies of mine are sitting in another section. Let's meet up in this inning and, you know, like hang out in this spot for, you know, an inning or two that doesn't really exist right now. Like I said, outside of the flight deck. So like, that stuff is great. You know, having more just kind of casual uh, spots to watch the game and hang out, I think uh, is important because that caters to a big sect of people raising the bullpens and bringing the fans closer. No brainer. Like right now, it just, it, it just feels like kind of, you know, cold. I, I, it's just not the baseball experience that I think a lot of people have people want who are sitting in the outfield want to be able to, you know, catch a home run and be right on top of the bullpen and see those guys throwing and, you know, hopefully respectfully heckle <laughs> or, or get on a, uh, the opposition or cheer their favorite players in the bullpen. So having that, I think, which Mark Shapiro alluded to was, you know, something that I think that they prioritized. That was also uh, something that I thought was, was a real smart decision. And like, I'm just honestly very curious what it's actually going to look like in its physical form, because like those renderings are great and cool and all of that, but I, I'm just like, and I'm sure you are. And, and so many people that have been going to games and, and been in that stadium too many times to count. It's just like, it's the only thing I know. So for it to look radically different is going to be hard for me to like calibrate my brain. It's going to take some adjusting that the Roger center is going to look 
like discernibly different than it has for the lion's share of my life. Yeah, no. And I think that was the thing that stood out to me when I was listening to Mark Shapiro is they really want to make the Rogers Center a space where both baseball fans but non-baseball fans can go and have a good time and enjoy the experience. And right now the experience is really just focused on watching the baseball game. And honestly, some of the seats aren't even very good for watching the baseball game because they don't face the action on the field. And so I think making the Rogers Center more of like almost a prime entertainment um, experience, not just like a baseball stadium. That's really going to be key to these renovations. I'm excited to see them. I've been down to Dunedin to see how the new stadium looks there and also the player development complex. And it's the same architectural company that is going to be overseeing the design team. So I'm optimistic that they'll look good um, because what I've seen down in Dunedin was really great, really spectacular, didn't disappoint. Along with those renovations with the Rogers Center that the fans will enjoy, the, the players are also going to get upgraded um, clubhouse and, and amenities and all this different thing. So it's really exciting. This episode was really exciting. I'm very glad that Josh he was here to join us. Uh, I hope that I steered the ship well enough through navigating the waters through this underwhelming trade deadline. <laughs> you did great. Uh, <laughs> this is great. Lots of fun. Well, we'll invite you back when Drew is on. Um, we always enjoy having you on the show. Um, if you're not already listening, listening, listen to Josh's podcast. Josh, do you have anything to plug or what do you want to plug? Uh, yeah, you can uh, listen to uh, the Designated for Assignment podcast wherever you get it. Myself and Rob Wong every week, breaking down the biggest storylines around the team, You know, taking your questions, uh, getting after it like we always have. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. This is our first season doing it. Good to be still having an outlet to talk about the Jays. You can find me on Twitter at jgoldberg12. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have already found me. I tweet a lot. I like to mix it up and uh, interact with everyone. So you can find me there too. Great. So obviously everyone follow Josh, tweet at him. He'll respond to you. I know he responds to a lot of his tweets. Um, So thank you everyone for listening. Drew and Ricky will be back soon with another episode. Then you'll hear me, I guess, on Monday for another episode. So for Josh and for me, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you again soon. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 